You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 403 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall, in the last episode, we were talking about the fighting in and around Vineyard Field. But even while the combat on that part of the battlefield was raging late on the afternoon of September 19th, just a short distance to the north up the Lafayette Road, there was still intense fighting going on in and around Brotherton Field and Poe Field. There, the Federals of Horatio Van Cleves and Joseph Reynolds' divisions were battling the Confederates of A.P. Stewart's and Bushrod Johnson's divisions for possession of the Lafayette Road. The Yankee and Rebel lines surged back and forth, advancing and retreating as both sides swapped charge and countercharge in and around the fields and in the smoky woods. A quote from a Union soldier in the 9th Kentucky in Beatty's Brigade is typical of the experiences and confusion of the men on both sides here. Quote, We saw a way through an opening in the woods, heavy columns of rebels going to the right. Where are they going? Is our right properly protected? The enemy's line is advancing, almost at right angles with our line, and consequently they are subjected to a heavy front and flank fire. Soon our line begins to waver, and then fall back in great disorder. Even as the Federals struggled mightily to hold together a coherent line of defense, lack of coordination among the different Confederate formations on this part of the battlefield kept the rebels from turning the tide of battle here, in and around Brotherton Field and Poe Field. As the last of the Federal troops to arrive on the scene here, the men of Negley's division from George Thomas's 14th Corps came up late in the afternoon from their reserve position, and a man in the 78th Pennsylvania said, quote, The battle was raging fiercely in the forest along the Chickamauga. Batteries of artillery and brigades of infantry were moving on the double quick to the support of our forces on the battle lines. We could see the smoke of battle rising above the trees, almost shutting out our view of the forest, while the roar of artillery and the rattle of musketry was deafening. The arrival of Negley's division brought the fighting in and around Brotherton Field and Poe Field to a fitful close, and went a long way toward shoring up the Federal position on this part of the battlefield. By 6 p.m., with darkness beginning to settle over the fields and woods west of Chickamauga Creek, 
The two armies settled into a haphazard patchwork line bisecting the battlefield from northeast to southwest. The vital Lafayette Road remained a contested objective. It was well inside Union lines north of Poe Field, but it was in no man's land south of that point. Both Rosecrans and Bragg had fed tens of thousands of troops into the battle with little regard for the proper chain of command. Rosecrans had spent most of the 19th reacting to Confederate moves, responding to various perceived thrusts by the enemy rather than attempting to control the action. Old Rosie fed troops into the fight as they became available, often with little regard for the proper chain of command, as Tracy just said. The jumbled nature of the Army of the Cumberland's condition at nightfall was the natural result of Rosecrans' decisions. Only 14th Corps Commander George Thomas had a clearly defined area of responsibility. Thanks to Rosecrans funneling troops to him throughout the day, Thomas, there on the northern end of the battlefield, now commanded roughly one-half of the Federal Army. 20th Corps Commander Alexander McCook and 21st Corps Commander Thomas Crittenden's commands were less clearly defined. On the 19th, both McCook and Crittenden tried to help where they were needed, but received no clear direction or defined sectors of responsibility from Rosecrans. On the Confederate side, all along the line, the rebel troops were located about where they had landed after the fighting came to a close, rather than intentionally deployed there. Hood's troops and A.P. Stewart's division simply fell back into the woods east of the Lafayette Road. Ben Cheatham and St. John Little's men did the same, opposite Palmer's and Johnson's Federals. Matthew Ector's and Claudius Wilson's brigades of Walker's Corps had been out of the fight since that morning and were badly cut up. However, many thousands of Confederates hadn't yet fired a shot, including William Preston's division of Simon Bolivar Buckner's Corps, still in place north of Lee and Gordon's Mills near the Hall House, and Thomas Hindman's division, recently arrived behind Buckner's position. Then there was D.H. Hill's entire corps as well. Hill's two divisions under Patrick Claiborne and John C. Breckinridge were solid commands. Claiborne's men were even then filing into place behind St. John Little's troops. Breckinridge's men were the last Confederate troops to reach the battlefield after spending the day guarding Glass Mill to the south. One last act remained to be played out on September 19th, because as Claiborne's men marched up behind his position, St. John Little believed there was still an opportunity to inflict some damage on the Yankees across the way, if only an attack could be organized in time. Little was certain that making another attack there on the northern part of the battlefield could pay significant dividends, and when he voiced his idea, he touched off one of the few large-scale night actions of the entire Civil War. Earlier in the day, while the battle had raged farther south, the Winfrey Field sector had remained quiet for several hours. That afternoon, fighting flared up there again, and sporadic action continued well into the evening. About half-past three that afternoon, after successfully driving back the Confederates an hour or so earlier, 
the Federal troops of Brigadier General Richard Johnson's 20th Corps Division took up a line facing east and stretching from a point just south of the Winfrey House and Orchard to the northwest corner of Winfrey Field. Unfortunately, both of Johnson's flanks were up in the air. On Johnson's right, slightly to the south and several hundred yards to the west, Turchin's brigade marked the flank of Palmer's 21st Corps Division. Then, up to Johnson's left, the 14th Corps Divisions of Baird and Brannan still guarded the Reeds Bridge Road, but their lines ended three-quarters of a mile north of Johnson's position at Winfrey Field. Despite their exposed position, the morale of Johnson's men was high. After all, they had just driven the rebels back half a mile or more, inflicted considerable losses on them, and had knocked most of Cheatham's division out of the fight for the rest of the day. On the Confederate side, Cheatham's sudden retreat in the face of Johnson's attack around 2.30 that afternoon had caused considerable concern in the headquarters of Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk's Corps. That's because the only rebel troops available to stabilize the situation were from Walker's Battered Corps. Nevertheless, some of Walker's troops, in the form of St. John Little's two brigades, led by Govan and Wathel, were ordered to support Cheatham's right. In the earlier fighting, Little's men had suffered somewhat less than Walker's other brigades, led by Matthew Ector and Claudius Wilson. Little placed Wathel's brigade of Mississippians on the left and Govan's brigade of Arkansans and Louisianans on the right, both facing west. When it went into action that morning, Little's division numbered just over 4,000 men, but about one quarter of its strength had been swept away during the earlier fighting. St. John Little ordered Wathel's and Govan's brigades forward around 3.30 that afternoon. They clashed with Johnson's Federals in and around Winfrey Field, and the combat did not go well for the Confederates. Wathel's Mississippians moved forward directly into the leveled muskets of Willock's and Baldwin's brigades of Yankees. Union artillery also bolstered the enemy line, and within 15 minutes, Edward Wathel realized the futility of his effort and ordered his men to fall back. Meanwhile, Govan's Arkansans and Louisianans in the heavy timber marched right past Johnson's exposed left without realizing they could have fallen upon the vulnerable Yankee flank. When Colonel Philemon Baldwin, whose brigade was holding down Johnson's left, realized the danger, he faced his two reserve regiments, the 93rd Ohio and 6th Indiana, to the north, from which position they poured musket fire into the flank of Govan's rebels. Hit by this heavy, unexpected fire, Govan's advance quickly fell apart, and his Arkansans and Louisianans tumbled back the way they had come. Despite the repulse of Govan's and Wathel's brigades, St. John Little remained convinced that opportunity beckoned in Winfrey Field. He believed the Confederate efforts here had failed because fresh troops hadn't been on hand to support the attacks. But now, those fresh troops had arrived on the scene in the form of Claiborne's division. Little would recall, quote, 
I pressed him to move to the attack at once and drive the enemy back, as they must be greatly exhausted from our constant fighting. Little and Patrick Claiborne were well acquainted. Little had led a brigade under Claiborne for nearly a year and had only recently been elevated to command of his own division. Despite that familiarity, and despite knowing that Little had proven his ability as a combat commander at Corinth, Perryville, and Stones River, when Little shared his belief that one more attack here at Winfrey Field would crack the Union line, Claiborne didn't agree with him. Claiborne's thinking was understandable. After all, it was now dusk, and his troops were moving up to the front on unfamiliar ground, and Little's own recent assault here had been a bloody, confused failure. But when Claiborne's immediate superior, Corps Commander D.H. Hill, arrived on the scene, Little took the opportunity to reiterate his argument for another immediate attack. After hearing Little out, Hill agreed it was a good idea. So, Claiborne's division would make the assault despite his misgivings and despite the growing darkness. A 35-year-old Patrick Claiborne had come to America from County Cork, Ireland in 1849 after serving three years as an enlisted man in Her Majesty's 41st Regiment of Foot. He made his way to Helena, Arkansas, where he managed a drugstore and later became a lawyer. When Arkansas seceded and war seemed imminent, Claiborne joined the local militia company and was elected its captain. When, after the outbreak of hostilities, that company was combined with nine others to form a regiment, Claiborne was elected its colonel. And when that regiment was brigaded with three others under the overall command of William Hardy, Hardy recommended Claiborne for command of the brigade. After leading his brigade at Shiloh, Claiborne temporarily commanded a small division during the invasion of Kentucky in late summer 1862. At the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky, at the end of August, he was wounded when a bullet pierced his left cheek, smashed several teeth, and exited his mouth. He recovered in time to take part in the Battle of Perryville in October. Promoted to Major General and Permanent Command of a Division in November 1862, he commanded it in the fighting at Stones River. Claiborne's command here at Chickamauga numbered about 5,300 men. After the war, his division would enjoy a near-legendary reputation for combat prowess, but in September of 1863, It was just coalescing as a fighting formation here at Chickamauga. You see, in the post-battle reorganization of the Army after Stones River, two of Claiborne's four brigades were transferred to other commands. Those troops were replaced by a brigade composed of Texans and Arkansans, who, captured previously at Arkansas Post and later exchanged, were sent to the Army of Tennessee under something of a cloud. The re-equipped Texans and Arkansans were led by Brigadier General James Deschler. Claiborne's other two brigades were led by Brigadier Generals Lucius K. Polk and S.A.M. Wood. Polk was a solid performer, nephew to the Bishop General Leonidas Polk, but Wood was more of a question mark. He had stumbled at Shiloh and demanded a court of inquiry to clear him. 
returned to command, he was wounded at Perryville and saw action at Stones River. Claiborne's men initially followed the same route Cheatham's division had tramped, moving up the Alexander's Bridge Road and on toward Jay's Mill. When they finally halted and faced west, the three brigades of Deschler, Wood, and Polk formed a battle line more than one mile long. As Claiborne's men sorted themselves out into line of battle, to their front were other Confederate troops, parts of both St. John Little's and Cheatham's divisions. In comparison to the position held by Johnson's Federals at Winfrey Field, Claiborne's line was long enough that when it started forward, it would overlap both of Johnson's flanks, which was a potential disaster in the making for the Yankees. In any case, within the Federal lines at Winfrey Field, Johnson and his men were alert to the potential danger. In fact, after the attack by Little's Confederates, George Thomas ordered Baird to move two brigades of his division south from the Reeds Bridge Road to connect with and support Baldwin's brigade on Johnson's left. This would secure Johnson's vulnerable left flank. Then, about 5 p.m., George Thomas made a more dramatic decision regarding his position as a whole. Thinking that his lines there on the northern part of the battlefield were, quote-unquote, very much extended, he decided to pull back and, quote, concentrate them on more commanding ground. At that hour, Thomas was also dealing with the unfolding crisis around Brotherton Field, and his attention was fully engaged by the fighting there, so he had little time or energy to spare much thought on the relatively quiet sector around Winfrey Field. Perhaps those distractions explain why Baird's Federals were so slow in moving to connect with and support Baldwin's brigade on Johnson's left. And perhaps those distractions also explain why, two hours after Thomas decided to pull back, Johnson's line was still hanging on at Winfrey Field. In fact, after Baird's two brigades, under Starkweather and Scribner, did arrive, and halt several hundred yards to Johnson's left rear, things were so quiet that both Absalom Baird and Richard Johnson rode off together to find out more about the new positions Thomas wanted them to take up after they pulled back from their present lines. That meant both Federal Division commanders, Baird and Johnson, were absent when Claiborne's mile-long line of Confederates stepped off to make their night assault. While the mile-long length of Claiborne's battle line offered certain advantages over the defending Federals, it also created several difficulties for the Confederates. Very few night attacks were launched during the Civil War because darkness naturally complicated combat, especially for the attacker. Here, for Claiborne, controlling a mile-long line of battle as it advanced would be hard enough in daylight, but now, at night, on unfamiliar ground, it was practically impossible. As they advanced, Claiborne's brigades would also have to pass through the friendly lines of Cheatham's and Little's troops to their front. The passage of lines was one of the most difficult maneuvers to carry out during a Civil War battle, and this attempt would prove no exception. 
As a result, passing through Cheatham's and Little's troops almost immediately disrupted Claiborne's lines, with gaps appearing between his brigades. As might be expected, the most significant federal resistance came in the center, where Woods, Alabamans, and Mississippians had to cross the open ground of Winfrey Field. Wood lost control of his regiments almost from the start. Some of the regiments halted while others surged ahead in the darkness. Colonel E.B. Breedlove of the 45th Alabama, on the right center of Wood's line, drove his men right up to the fence where Baldwin's Federals were posted. Only then did he discover that he was 75 yards ahead of the rest of Wood's line. The confusion increased when the regiment on Breedlove's right, the combined 32nd and 45th Mississippi, began shooting into his exposed right flank instead of into the Yankees. Struck by this friendly fire, half of the Alabamans halted while the rest rushed forward. In a desperate effort to regain control of his suddenly fractured regiment, Breedlove ordered his men to fall back. The rest of Wood's advance was equally chaotic. Complicating the matter was Wood's failure to lead. Instead of making an effort to control his brigade, he was nowhere to be found. After the battle, rumors swirled that Wood had remained well to the rear as his men advanced. True or not, within days he had left the army, quote-unquote, in disgrace, according to a man at brigade headquarters. Confusion plagued the federal defense as well. In the midst of the Confederate night attack, the men of the 6th Indiana were stunned to see Philemon Baldwin, their former commander, and now leading the brigade, ride in front of them, right between the dueling lines of infantry. He seemed intent on launching a counterattack. Captain C.C. Bryant of Company K said, quote, This, of course, placed him between the two fires. Both him and his horse were killed instantly. The regiment, very sensibly, did not obey an order, order which should have never been given, but did just what they should have done, stand fast and give him hell. Baldwin's body was never recovered and was probably buried as one of the hundreds of unknown dead at Chickamauga. His rash attack order puzzled many in his old regiment. Baldwin had begun the war as a company commander in the 6th Indiana, was appointed colonel after Shiloh, and led a brigade at Stones River, so he didn't lack experience. It was probably fortunate for the regiment that its members didn't obey him, because while Wood's Confederates in the center were in difficulty, the rest of Claiborne's division was still moving forward. With Wood's line disrupted and falling back in confusion, two rebel artillery batteries, aided by the darkness, unlimbered as close as 60 yards to the Federals and opened a rapid fire. At the same time, on Claiborne's right and left, Polk's and Deschler's brigades were advancing. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Fortunately for the rebels, S.A.M. Wood's botched advance in the center wasn't duplicated along the rest of Claiborne's extended line. On Claiborne's right, Lucius Polk's brigade of Tennesseans, Arkansans, and regular Confederate troops pushed north of both Winfrey Field and the left flank of Baldwin's brigade and there collided with the Yankees of Starkweather's and Scribner's brigades from Baird's division. As you guys will recall, the Federals of Starkweather's and Scribner's brigades were expecting to move shortly, either forward to support Johnson's position at Winfrey Field or back to the new line that George Thomas wanted everyone to occupy. As a result, they were unprepared for the heavy rebel attack that fell upon them from out of the deepening darkness. When Polk's Confederates struck the 38th Indiana first, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Griffin reported that, quote, The enemy came in at this point, advancing in the darkness and pouring a volley of musketry on our flank, that caused our line to retire a few hundred yards. Another Hoosier in the 38th remembered confused fighting and being hit by friendly fire when the 2nd Ohio, quote, just next to us, foolishly fired right on us, end quote. Unfortunately for those involved in them, friendly fire incidents were all too common during night attacks as the men and officers were easily disoriented in the darkness and became confused as to the position of friendly and enemy units. To Starkweather, it seemed as though fire was coming from all directions. Scribner's men, he said, quote, Open fire upon the left regiments of my brigade and the left of Johnson's division, thus destroying my men. In response, Starkweather said, quote, Johnson's troops faced about and fired into my right. The result of this bloody fiasco for the Federals here 
was that both Scribner's and Starkweather's brigades fell back in confusion. The success of Polk's Confederates on Claiborne's right was replicated by Deschler's brigade of Texans on Claiborne's left, who were busy working their way around the other flank of Johnson's Federals, south of Winfrey Field. Deschler's line lost contact with Woods to its right when Woods' advance collapsed in confusion. Deschler's Texans initially drifted southwest, reoriented themselves, and a short time later swung in a wide arc that brought them up from the south into the right flank of Johnson's line at Winfrey Field, held by Colonel Joseph Dodge's brigade. Nearby, on the Confederate side, in an effort to support Deschler, Division Commander Ben Cheatham ordered two of his brigades, led by Brigadier Generals John K. Jackson and Preston Smith, to move forward and aid the Texans. But what Cheatham didn't realize was that Deschler's shift to the southwest had opened a large gap in Claiborne's line. And so, although Jackson and Smith advanced through the darkness, thinking there were friendly Confederate troops to their front, what they actually found was some of Dodge's Yankees. While leading his men forward, Preston Smith suddenly found himself in the middle of the 77th Pennsylvania. Captain John Harris of Smith's staff recalled how, quote, we rode right into their lines before they discovered us. Just as surprised as the Confederates by the unexpected encounter there in the darkness, about 30 Pennsylvanians nevertheless managed to set fingers to triggers and fire at the rebel officers. Several of those bullets found their mark, including one that hit Smith in the chest. He was carried off the field by his men, but died within the hour. Within moments of the deadly encounter, the Pennsylvanians were overrun by Smith's advancing Tennesseans. Struck at the same time by Deschler's Texans from their right rear, the 77th Pennsylvania found itself hemmed in on all sides. In the dark and bloody chaos that followed, 73 Pennsylvanians surrendered, including regimental commander Colonel Thomas Rose. Dozens more men were captured from the other regiments of Dodge's brigade. Captain Harris of the fallen Preston Smith's staff reported that he personally took custody of 30 Yankees, including a major and a captain. Of the 532 total casualties in Dodge's brigade at Chickamauga, 307 were reported missing, with most of them captured in this night action. With rebels on both their flanks and working their way into their rear, Johnson's brigades at Winfrey Field broke. Colonel Allen Buckner of the 79th Illinois in Dodge's brigade said that, quote, We fell back under a heavy crossfire from the enemy and our friends. I found the colors of the 30th Indiana and rallied as many as possible, constantly moving back until we reached the rear. They may have had to give up Winfrey Field, but fortunately for the routed Federals, Claiborne's and Cheatham's Confederates were almost equally disordered by the success of their night attack. In the darkness and confusion, the rebel advance ground to a halt, allowing Johnson's Yankees to fall back and reform on Baird's line.
Claiborne's night attack marked the end of the second day's fighting. Sporadic picket fire would flare up here and there, up and down the lines, across the battlefield, through the rest of the night, but the resumption of the real fighting would wait for the morning and daylight. For the most part, both armies had settled on the battlefield where dusk had found them. We know it can perhaps be a little hard to picture where all the action we talk about is happening on the battlefield, so we thought it might be beneficial to review the positions of each army up and down the line, and in that way maybe help you better picture the locations in your mind's eye. On the federal side, to the north, King's regulars watched the Reeds Bridge Road. In the woods to the south, after Claiborne's night attack petered out, Baird's other two brigades, Starkweather's and Scribner's, formed a line facing east. And after retreating from Winfrey Field, Johnson's division rallied and reformed on Baird's right. A bit farther to the south, a dangerous bulge marked the center of George Thomas's position as the line of Turchin's brigade, from Reynolds' division, curved from the northeast to the southwest. On Turchin's right, Palmer's division was scattered. Cruft's brigade held Turchin's right, facing nearly south. Then Gross's brigade angled to face nearly due west, creating a potentially dangerous salient. Meanwhile, Hazen's brigade was on its way to rejoin the division. As we mentioned earlier, George Thomas had wanted all nine of these brigades to pull back and form a new defensive line along the Lafayette Road. But the rush of events that evening and the onset of darkness had prevented Thomas's wishes from being carried out. At any rate, back along the Lafayette Road at Poe Field, Division Commander Joseph Reynolds, with just Ed King's brigade under his command, sketched a line along the west edge of the field and into the woods to the south. Down the road, the brigades of Stanley and Sirwell from Negley's division held a similar line on Reynolds' right at Brotherton Field. But, as evidence of the jumbled nature of the lines and the command confusion gripping parts of the Army of the Cumberland, they were unaware of Reynolds' presence just to the north, and in addition, their lines also didn't connect with any Federals to the south. Behind Negley's position, west of the road, the three brigades of Brannon's division, Van Der Veer, Connell, and Croxton, formed at the Dyer House, while Van Cleve was working to reform the two brigades of his division still under his immediate command, under Samuel Beatty and Dick. Continuing down the Lafayette Road, loosely grouped west of Vineyard Field and along the road were eight more Federal brigades. All of them were under the ad hoc command of 21st Corps Commander Thomas Crittenden. This mass included Tom Wood's two brigades, led by Buell and Harker, two of Phil Sheridan's brigades, Bradley's and Laybolt's, and Van Cleve's errant brigade under Barnes. Here also was Wilder's Lightning Brigade, and behind them all were Jefferson C. Davis's two badly battered brigades under Carlin and Haig. Troops from Alexander McCook's 20th Corps were parceled out to various sectors of the battlefield, which meant McCook had no designated command at the end of the second day's fighting. Besides the 20th Corps units now under Thomas's and Crittenden's command, there was Little's Brigade, from Sheridan's division, which was still to the south, 
guarding Lee and Gordon's mills, and John Beatty's brigade from Negley's division, which was also detached to the south, was stationed between Lee and Gordon's mills and the widow Glenn's cabin. On the Confederate side of the lines, the rebels were similarly disorganized. Starting our survey of the lines to the south, west of Chickamauga Creek, the three brigades of William Preston's division, under Gracie, Trigg, and Kelly of Simon Bolivar Buckner's corps, were in position near the Thedford House. Thomas Heinemann's division of Leonidas Polk's corps was massed a few hundred yards behind Preston. Then, to the north, the Confederate center was a jumble of troops. Hood's corps and A.P. Stewart's division were intermingled in the woods, facing west toward the Lafayette Road, from near Vineyard Field, stretching as far north as the Brotherton Road. In this sector, Brock Field represented a kind of no-man's land between the opposing armies. On the Confederate right flank, on the northern end of the battlefield, Claiborne's brigades, under Deschler, Polk, and Wood, remained in place after their night attack and their routing of the Yankees from Winfrey Field. The five brigades of Cheatham's division, under Jackson, Vaughn, Manny, Wright, and Strahl, were behind Claiborne, while the men of Walker's Corps, in the brigades of St. John Little, Wilson, and Ector, were massed behind Cheatham. Bedford Forest Cavalry pulled flank duty, mostly north of the Reeds Bridge Road. Then, behind the lines, John C. Breckenridge's division of D.H. Hill's Corps was moving north to join Claiborne. Meanwhile, two more brigades from the Army of Northern Virginia, under Joseph Kershaw and Benjamin Humphreys, had arrived at Ringgold Station and were marching to the battlefield, and James Longstreet himself had also reached Ringgold and was riding through the darkness to report to Braxton Bragg. Although each side had fought the other to a bloody draw on September 19th, Bragg held one significant advantage over William Rosecrans, fresh troops. Yep, because heading into the third day of the battle, 11 Confederate brigades in the divisions of Hindman, Preston, Breckenridge, and Kershaw had yet to see any significant action. In addition, Bragg was looking forward to the arrival of James Longstreet, since the reputation of Lee's old war horse preceded him, and Bragg was fully intending to make the most of Longstreet's talents. The end of the fighting on the 19th allowed both army commanders to reflect on the day's events, then devise plans for the resumption of the battle on the next morning. For both Rosecrans and Bragg, the 19th had not gone according to plan. Bragg had expected to initiate a battle in the relatively open country around Lee and Gordon's mills, with his army crushing the federal left flank. Instead, he'd been forced to scrap his plan as the escalating combat to the north required him to continually send troops in that direction to stabilize the situation. Rosecrans had been hoping to defer a major fight until he could concentrate his corps in front of the roads leading back to Chattanooga. But he, too, had been forced by circumstances not of his making to improvise a response to the new realities of the day. 
That improvised response had resulted in the breakdown of core integrity, with George Thomas receiving a division each from the 20th and 21st Corps, while McCook's and Alexander's commands dwindled accordingly. All in all, when all was said and done, neither army commander on the 19th had been able to do more than funnel troops northward in relatively successful efforts to stabilize a front line. Because of the dense woods and confused nature of the fighting, and the fact neither had moved from their headquarters the entire day, neither Bragg nor Rosecrans had been able to get an accurate picture of what was happening for much of the 19th. Now, in the hours of darkness, while their soldiers shivered in the cold and collected the wounded, both army commanders had serious decisions to make before the sun rose on the morrow. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. But instead of a book, we're going to recommend a video, because the American Battlefield Trust, formerly the Civil War Trust, has an excellent 22-minute animated map of the Battle of Chickamauga that's well worth watching and will help you understand where all these locations that we talk about are on the battlefield. We'll post the link to that video on the website for you so you can check it out. And the website is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Yep. Well, then as we wrap up this episode, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Dan W. and James M. And thanks to Harold J. for his recent donation. Just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and the end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, which we use with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.